Our holy and gracious God, I pray that you would come and speak your word clearly and truly to your people in such a way that we can hear rightly and understand what you would have for us and in such a way that that moves us, that that stirs our hearts and, and clarifies questions in our minds that we could truly know what it means to live as your people. I pray this in the name of Christ, asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. People can be really creative when it comes to fixing things that are broken. And one of the fun things about the internet is that it can help us see the ingenious fixes that other people have come up with uh, for their different uh, broken things. So I recently came across a few of these under the caption, there, I fixed it. Uh, So let's say that your car has a flat tire. But the problem is that you don't have a spare with you. You do happen to have a flatbed utility cart. So... It's okay. You just jack up your car, you slide the cart under there, put the axle right on the flatbed, and you're good to go, right? You fixed it. And for extra safety, you can have your friend grab onto the handlebars, and and everything's great. Or if you have a little bit more time on your hand, you have the same scenario where you have a, a flat tire and you don't have a spare, you can actually retrofit a different size tire onto your car. It doesn't even have to be a car tire. You can just grab any industrial uh, kind of wheel and throw it on there, and you're good to go. And it's not just for cars either. If you happen to uh, somehow have lost the front wheel of your bicycle, for example, you know, you don't have to have a a new, you don't have to go through all the work of finding a new tire for it. You just find a shopping cart, strap the handles onto your handles, and you're good to go. You fixed it, right? Good as new. Well, we run into all sorts of problems in our lives, don't we? And we come up with all sorts of different solutions for fixing those problems, you know, sometimes our attempts to fix them doesn't actually get to the root issue. We can kind of have a superficial patch on it, but we haven't really dealt with the real problem there. And this is the kind of situation that we have before us this morning. So we are continuing to look in these four weeks of Advent at the ancient history of God's people Israel to see how each period of Israel's history is really pointing forward to the birth of Jesus that we're celebrating in this month. So today we're looking at the uh, beginning of a period in Israel's history where they were ruled by kings. The text this morning is going to be 1 Samuel chapter 8, the very beginning of kingship in Israel. So what we're going to see here is that the people are going to perceive a problem and they're going to try to find a solution to that problem. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. And if you um, would like to turn there in your Bibles, that would be a good thing to have open. If, you're, if you don't have a, pew Bible or a Bible with you, you can use the Bibles that are provided in the little pew racks in front of you. Uh, if you're doing that, it's found on page 268. So page 268 of the pew Bibles, it's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. So as we look at this text together, we're going to see two different perspectives on the problem that the people of Israel are facing. So really, we're looking at two competing perspectives here. We'll start off with the first perspective, which is what the people themselves think is wrong here, and we'll see what they think is going to fix it. So the problem is set out in the uh, opening verses of 1 Samuel chapter 8. So look with me at verses 1 through 5. When Samuel grew old... He appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, 
you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Okay, so this is the problem for the people of Israel. Right now, they're being led by a good leader named Samuel. And Samuel has been really, really good for the people of Israel. We saw last week that they had a really dark period before this in the book of Judges where things were just spiraling out of control into ever-increasing darkness. So the book of Judges is a really dark period. Samuel is kind of the transitional figure here, and he has really led a lot of positive changes for the people of Israel. But the problem is that he's getting old, and he set up his sons to rule in his place, but his sons have proven that, that they're not good leaders. They're doing the exact opposite of what they should be doing. Rather than upholding justice and leading well, they're taking bribes. They're just in it for themselves. So Israel, just coming out of this period of darkness and the period of the judges, is looking at that and then looking at Samuel's sons and saying they don't want to go back to that dark period. And they're worried that that's what's going to happen if Samuel's sons are going to continue to lead. So the problem, as the the people understand it, from their perspective, the problem here is that it's an unstable system. Israel is in an unstable period of their history. There's no good godly leader to take over from Samuel to succeed him in leading the people of Israel. And so they propose a solution. We'll give us a king, and then everything will be fixed. And to some degree, that solution makes sense because, you know, they've got, Israel is made up of 12 different tribes, so we could think about the United States as 50 different states. When we're together under one federal government, it's a centralized government, so it kind of makes more sense organizationally. So for the 12 tribes of Israel, having a king to bring them together unifies them and and kind of centralizes the power and those kind of things. It seems to kind of make sense for them. But there's really more than that going on here. So if we skip a few verses, get to verse 20, we really see the motivation that Israel has for asking for a king. So they're saying, we want a king over us, and then verse 20, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Now Israel lives in a, in a very potentially hazardous, volatile region of the world. They've got uh, Egypt, which is a perennial power to the south. They've got kind of Assyria, Babylon uh, to the north there, and they've got the Philistines to the east of them. It's a pretty volatile region of the world. So they're worried that these other strong nations are going to come and and wipe them out, basically. So when they're asking for a king, what Israel really wants is security. They want a king who is a strong military leader, Someone who can go out before them, who can fight their battles, and who can make sure all those bad guys out there aren't going to come get us. That's essentially what Israel is asking for. They want someone who can bring them peace. So basically, from the people's perspective, the problem is instability for the nation, an unstable period, and the solution to that is a king. And when they look out at what a king could be, their vision of kingship is, is really good. It's saying a king is going to bring peace and stability in a turbulent time for Israel. That's their perspective on what's going on here. But there are some problems with this. And as we turn to the second perspective then, we see what's wrong with this. And, and so this perspective, the second perspective, is really God's perspective. So that was what the people thought was going on and how to solve it. And now we turn to the second perspective to see what God is saying is happening here. So look at uh, verses 6 through 9 with me. Again, of 1 Samuel chapter 8. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, 
Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now, if we just look at verse 5, if we just look at the request at the beginning, it doesn't look like this request for a king is really such a bad thing. And even if you go earlier, generations earlier in Israel's history to see in Moses' day, there was actually provision made for a time when Israel would have a king. So you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's verses 14 to 20, talk about when Israel will have a king. So at the surface level, it looks like this request at the beginning of 1 Samuel 8 is, is just the next step in Israel's history. I mean, Moses wrote of a day when they would have a king. There are regulations for that. But if we look a little bit more closely at verse 5, we see a little bit of the problem. So they say, now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And that's repeated again in verse 20. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us. Well, the problem is that Israel isn't supposed to be like all the other nations. I mean, this is the promise that, that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, saying, I am going to be your God, you're going to be my people, I'm going to make your descendants, Abraham's descendants, which means Israel, I'm going to make your descendants into a special nation. They're not supposed to be like every other nation, they're supposed to be a particular people. I mean, that's what the promise to Abraham was all about. Specifically, they're different because they belong to God. They're different because there's a special relationship between this people, Israel, and the God who created the universe, Yahweh. And part of what's so special about that relationship between God and the people of Israel is that God is their king. I mean, that's back in Deuteronomy 2, but again, Moses' day, he's telling the people that God is your king, Yahweh, the creator of the universe, is your king. That's why you're different than the other nations. They just have these human kings who might claim divinity, but in, in truth, they're just human kings. They have human kings who lead them, but you're a special people. You have a special relationship with God. God himself is your king. And then if we look at verse 20 again and see this, this uh, desire for a king to, to lead them into battle, to fight their battles for them, that too is the job that Yahweh was supposed to have. So again, if we go back to Deuteronomy and see what the intention here was, Deuteronomy 20 says this, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. So God is the one who is the king of Israel. God is the one who goes before them to fight their battles for them. So what's really going on in the people of Israel requesting the king is that they don't trust God to do what he said he would do. They don't trust God to be their king. They don't trust that God is the one who fights their battles for them. They want a human king, someone that they can see, someone that can lead them into battle because they want something tangible. But what's really evident here is that the people don't trust God. 
And that's nothing new for Israel. God says that they have rejected me, which is what they've always been doing from the day I brought them out of Egypt. Now, in fairness, you can understand why the people of Israel are asking for a king, right? They're in an unstable position. They've had lots of bad rulers, a lot of dark history in the book of Judges. They don't want to go back to that. They've got a glimpse of what it could be better with a better leader like Samuel. They don't want to go back that way. But the problem is that they've misdiagnosed the problem. They're only looking at the externals. They're seeing the insecurity, the instability. They're worried about other nations coming and attacking them. But what God has been trying to teach the people from the very beginning, all the way through their history, is that their peace and their stability and that their security is directly related to their relationship to God. If they want stability, if they want peace, they need to stop running after other things like a, like a king to save them, and they need to start trusting in God himself. That's really the root of the issue here. So a king isn't really going to solve the problem. A king is a, is a temporary solution that doesn't really deal with the root problem here. So let's think about it this way. Let's say that you are having some electrical issues at your house. For some reason, you've got a breaker that keeps tripping. You're not sure why. So the first time, you don't think a lot of it. it you go down and, and you flip the thing again and it turns on. You're fine. Okay, that's fine. But then later in the day, the same thing happens again and it trips again. So you go down again, you flip it, and then you go about your day, but then it happens again a third time. You're thinking, okay, there's a problem here. I've got to address this in some way or I'm going to spend my whole day going down to the breaker box and flipping it over. So you come up with a solution. Let's put in a bigger breaker. So you take your 15-amp breaker out, and you put your 30-amp breaker in, and you've solved the problem, right? Your breaker doesn't trip anymore. And everything is great for a little while until whatever it was that was causing that 15-amp breaker to flip burns up your wire, and your house burns down. See, the problem isn't solved. It's just patched over, and it's leading to worse things down the road. That's what's going on here for Israel. They see that they are insecure, they're in, unstable. That's not a good thing. But they think a king is going to solve it. But God is pointing out a deeper problem, a, a bigger problem there. So yes, instability is a problem, but, but instability is not rooted just in bad leadership. It's, it's rooted in the fact that the people just don't trust that God is the one who's their king, that God's the one who leads them. So if you solve the leadership problem by getting a king... But if you don't solve the problem of trusting God, well, then things are only going to get worse. So that the root problem, the fundamental problem here is that the people don't trust God. They're looking to other things besides God for their peace and their stability. And so God tells Samuel to warn the people of Israel what's going to happen if they actually get the solution that they want. Remember, the, the people had a vision for what a king will bring them, right? A king is going to mean that there's a king to lead them. A king is going to go out. A king is going to fight their battles for them and keep them protected. A king is going to bring stability that way. That's their vision of what a king is going to do. But God sends Samuel with a very different vision of kingship. Look with me at verses 10 through 18 here. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons, 
and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants, the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So they have a vision of what kingship will be, and it's a good vision. Someone to bring them security, stability, peace. But Samuel's saying, this is what a, a king is really like. A king is a taker. He's going to take things from you. He's going to take your sons and your daughters and your fields and your livestock and your servants and your cattle and your donkey and sheep. He's going to take all of your stuff and he's going to use it for himself, his chariots, his horses, his ground, his harvest, his officials, his attendants. A king is a taker. He's taking the best of everything, and in the end, it's like you are his slaves. So they have their idea of what the problem is and what the solution is, and Samuel's clarifying and saying, this is what will happen if you get the solution that you want. And incredibly, God is actually going to give them a king, give them the solution that they want, and they're going to find that all of this is true. This is the result of their proposed solution. The root issue here is that the people of Israel are looking at the problem and they're finding a different solution. They're finding kind of a human solution, a political solution to the problem that's facing them. But what they need to do is to look to their God for a solution. But we do the same thing as them, don't we? I mean, we, we want peace and stability. We don't want to be just tossed back and forth in our lives, so we try to find things that will bring us stability. And so for some of us, we try really hard to, to find, to, to keep a, a really good job because we think, well, if I can get a good job that's secure, that pays me enough, then, then in at least one sphere of my life, I can have stability. If I can find financial stability, then somehow I will be able to have peace. And so we work really hard at trying to get, and get a job and keep the job. We work really hard at it. Or maybe that's not you. Maybe instead you think, well, if I just am really healthy, if I'm really physically fit, if I, if I run, if I exercise regularly, if I, if I can control my health, then there's some sphere of my life that I'm able to have peace in. Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you think, well, if I can just get in with the right group of friends, then, then someone will like me. I'll, I'll be in with a, an in-crowd, an influential group of people. I will find some group that, that I belong in, and, and then, at least in one sphere of my life, I will have stability. I will have peace. Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you're looking at your marriage and think, well, if, if I can find the right spouse and, and work really hard on my marriage, then, then at least at my home, at least there, if I can work hard enough, I can find stability there, at least somewhere I can have peace. And so we keep striving after these things because we don't want to live our whole life in instability, in, in fear, in worry. We don't want to live that way. So we, we try to get something that's going to, to give us a, a firm foundation, something to stand on, something to hang on to, to give us stability and security and peace. But the problem is that all of those things can be taken away from you and the rug's going to get pulled right out from under you. 
We think these are solutions, but they're not true solutions. They're just patches that are at best temporary. So what's the solution to all this? Let's look a little bit more at this this problem in Israel because it's going to give us a solution here. What Israel needs to understand is that no human king is going to solve their problem. No human king is going to be able to bring them peace and stability. And if you look at the, the history of God's people, look through First and Second Samuel, look First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it tells the whole history of the time when Israel had a king. And that whole history is turbulent. So you have an okay king, you have a good king, then you have a bad king, then another bad king, then another bad king, then an okay king, then a bad king, then a good king, then a bad king. It's not peace and security. That's not what, ha- what happens for the people of Israel. Their history proves that a king is not going to bring peace. So what will? We flip ahead to one of the dark periods of Israel's history. They've had a king for a long time now. They've had some really bad kings, and things are looking really, really bad for God's people. In the midst of that, God is warning them, but at the same time, he's going to give them some messages of hope. And so he sends a prophet named Isaiah. And that prophet Isaiah gives a few words of hope to the people. So this is what that prophet says in chapter 11 of Isaiah. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to these promises. A shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, we hear things like, stump from Jesse or a root of Jesse, branch of Jesse, that might not make immediate sense to us, but, but for the original readers, for the people of Israel, that would have made crystal clear right away. See, Jesse is the father of David, and David is the good king in Israel's history. He is the one who was godly, who was a good king, who led the people, who led a, a unified nation of Israel. So, so this is about a king. Isaiah 11 is about a king, but but this kind of king is different from the other kings that we heard about. So 1 Samuel 8 gives a picture of human kings, right? And that's what played out in Israel's history. They're takers. They take, they take, they take, they take. And they use it for themselves. But this king is totally different from those other kings. Rather than being a taker who's centered on getting what he can from the people, this king from Isaiah 11 is going to be a king who upholds justice for the needy, righteousness for those who are poor, In other words, his concern is for those who can't do anything for him. 
And the difference here, the fundamental difference between this king in Isaiah 11 and the kings that have gone before him, the human kings, is made clear in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord's on him. He knows the Lord. He fears the Lord. I mean, that's the fundamental difference. What this means is that rather than competing with God for the people's trust, this king from Isaiah 11 is actually going to lead the people to trust in God more. So this isn't a political solution to a spiritual problem. This is a true solution to the spiritual problem. This king in Isaiah 11 is going to overturn the world by bringing God's peace and God's justice and God's righteousness. And because that king addresses, addresses the root problem here and brings the people to trust God, because he addresses the root problem, the outcome of his rule is exactly what the people were looking for back in 1 Samuel. It's peace. So if you look at these images from verses 6 to verse 9, it's an incredible picture of peace. A wolf lying down with a lamb, a leopard lying down with a goat, a calf, the lion, yearling, feeding together. What, the, what this is a picture of is that the whole natural world with all of its you know, centuries-long hostilities is gone. This is now perfect harmony. It's, it's true peace. And that's really what the people wanted back in Samuel's day. They wanted a king because they wanted stability. They wanted peace. They wanted a life that wasn't filled with war and fear. But the best that they could even think to hope for in those days was, was a strong king that meant that their enemies weren't going to fight against them that day. But the picture of peace in Isaiah 11 is so much more than that. It's raising the expectation for what peace could look like on the earth. You know, we're stuck in our, in our little, you know, myopic vision here of what peace could be, and it's just someone's not fighting me right now, or someone's not hurting me right now. It's just a tiny little slice of peace that could hardly be called peace. But this is a complete reversal of everything that's wrong in the world. All of the hostility Everything that has caused fear and pain and sorrow from all the history of humankind, all of the history of the world, all of that is removed. I mean, that's true peace. It's not just no battle right now. It's true and lasting peace. I don't know about you, but I, I see this and it, it sounds wonderful. You know, this sounds like what I really want. I, I don't want just a tiny little bit of financial security or a tiny little bit of security at home or a tiny little piece of security with friends or whatever else it is. No, I, I want the world to be made right. I mean, this is ultimately what we need, isn't it? It's the complete reversal of everything that has gone wrong with the world. See, we don't just need no war right now or no battle right now. We need the world to be reordered according to God's good design, His good purpose. So you look back at Genesis 1 and 2, you see God's incredible creation of the world. And what does He say at the end of that? It is very good. And then you look at your life, and you look at the things that cause you fear and worry and anxiety. Listen, those things aren't good. Those things aren't part of God's original good intention for creation. They are a distortion of God's design, the result of the same problem that Israel had back in the day, the result of people not trusting God and looking for solutions other than God for the problems. But peace can never be found in that way. We will never find true peace and lasting security if that's the road that we travel. 
Isaiah 11 is pointing forward to the solution that the people in Samuel's day couldn't even imagine possible. A picture of peace that is a reordering of God's creation. It's saying that God himself is going to get at the very root of this problem. He's not going to address the peripheral things. A king's not going to be the answer, but he's going to get right at the root of the problem. He's going to send a true king. He's going to send a king that's going to transform the world, who's going to reorder everything that has gone wrong according to God's original design, his good purposes. He's, he's, he's reclaiming the world in this king so that there is true and lasting peace. So think about it, all of creation, scarred and torn by millennia of abuse, remade into a place where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. We don't need a king like 1 Samuel 8. That's not going to solve the problem. We need Jesus. And that's, that's the king of, of Isaiah 11. That's what the expectation of hope there, the expectation of real, true peace. It's on Jesus. It's the king who's the true David. Jesus, in the line of David, the true David, taking up the kingship that God has given him. Jesus is the king who will lead everything back to God's good purpose. So here's what we need to know. Jesus is the one who brings peace. If you want true, lasting peace, you've got to look to Jesus. Don't look at those peripheral things. They might provide just a little snippet of peace here and there, but, but you need something more than that. Don't, don't trust in those things. Jesus is the one who brings God's peace to the world. You know, you and I settle for, for just minor little pieces of, of, of peace and stability here and there, but but there are people through history who have found that the peace that Jesus offers is so much more than that. You look at the, the martyrs, the people who have been killed for their faith in Jesus, and you think, well, why would they do that? Why would they keep following Jesus? Why would they continue to testify to God's grace if their life is going to be taken from them? Well, the answer is because they, they trust God. They have found true peace, the kind of peace that, that is much more powerful than, than anything of the moment, any, much more powerful than anything superficial. So look at the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. The book of Acts tells his story in chapter 7, and, and Stephen is testifying to God's grace in this hostile crowd, and, and they get to the point where they're starting to pick up stones, and what they're going to do is throw those stones at this man Stephen until he dies. When you think about that kind of threat to your life, you're sitting there, you've probably seen people killed this way before, and it's a brutal, brutal practice. And yet, in the middle of that, he's still testifying that, that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is the source of peace. And as they start hurling the rocks at him, rather than being vindictive, rather than getting angry at him, this is what he says. This is from Acts chapter 7. First, he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, that's the kind of peace that's substantial. It means that if everything gets wrong in your, in your life, everything gets taken away, you're going to lose your own life. And yet he still had peace. Peace. Even in that moment, even as he was dying, his, his body was shutting down on him from all the bruises from these stones. And in that moment, he was able to say, yes, Jesus is the one who brings me peace. 
And rather than being vindictive, rather than striking back at them, he's able to say, God, forgive them. In other words, help them too to find the peace that I have found in Jesus. Do you have peace like that? I want you to think about the the things that that provide security or stability in in your life. The things that you're really striving for. The the things that that you find your hope in. Well, what do you do if those things are taken away? What what do you do if if your job is taken away? You lose your job. What what do you do if you get sick? What What do you do if you lose your spouse? If you lose your friend? Well, it means whatever it was that was holding your peace and your security has been removed. That The bottom falls out and there's nothing left. See, if your peace is built on anything other than what God has done for you in Jesus, it's going to disintegrate when things go badly for you. But if your hope is here, if your hope is on the king of Isaiah 11, then there is nothing that can shake that because this is something that is secure. Jesus brings peace. Now, we're all in different stages of our lives right now. We're all in different, in different um, experiences of God and everything else, different parts of our spiritual journey. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you're having a hard time believing this. Maybe you grew up in church, maybe not, but you're not really sure what you believe about God. You're not really sure what you believe about Jesus. You're, you're doubting this whole thing. You're not exactly sure what the solution is, but you're trying out different things. You, you, you're trying to find something to rest your security in. It's not a bad place to be, but my encouragement to you, if you find yourself in that position of doubting, is, is to not give up. Don't settle for, for an easy answer and don't settle for a, a not satisfying answer. You keep digging at it. Keep asking questions. Keep, keep, you, this is way too important to just let it slide and push it aside and pretend it's not there. You've got to keep digging for this because there is a solution. There is true and lasting peace offered to you. But maybe maybe you're not in a position of doubt. You do believe this, or at least you really want to believe this, or at least you intellectually believe it, but when you're actually living your life, you find it really hard to day in and day out trust God. When you run into trouble, you look for other solutions. You try to find human solutions to the things that are worrying you. And and when you are fearful, you don't immediately go to God, even though you intellectually know you should, but you just go elsewhere. My encouragement to you is to come back to the gospel time after time after time. The gospel is the good news that in Jesus Christ, God is making the world new. It's the message that, that it's not based on what you have done or your performance or what you do or how religious you think you are. It's not about that. It's about what God has done for you in Jesus. He has made you his child. And that means that you can have peace. So you have to come back to the gospel time after time. And maybe you don't struggle with doubt right now. Maybe you're not struggling with living out your faith right now. Maybe for you, you you believe this message and it fills your heart with peace. You come into this Christmas season and you are excited because you really believe that Jesus is the source of peace and, and it bubbles up in this great hope and joy in your life. If that's where you are, my encouragement to you is to tell other people because there are people sitting next to you in church and, and at work and at school all around you who need to have peace. They're worried and they're fearful. They're frightened. They don't know what's going on. They're in this whole whirlwind of life. 
and they need answers. If you have found the source of peace, you have to share that with others so that they too, by God's grace, can hear the message of peace. The good news is that God has solved the mess of life. You and I still live in it. We still see darkness all the time around us, but there is a solution. And it's not what you and I do. The solution isn't kind of our ability to make things right somehow, or, or if we can just come up with enough human organization, human uh, to, to sort of get it done. That's not what it's, what it's about. There, there's no hope in that. Lots of things have been tried in human history, and, and none of them has worked to accomplish that. But the solution is that God sends His Son into the world as the true King. He's the one who brings God's rule into the world and helps us to see that, that yes, God is making all things new in this one. Jesus himself brings peace. That's the bottom line. Jesus brings peace. And that is why we celebrate at Christmas. Because our Savior is born to transform the world. As we reflect on this, I want you to lift up your hearts and pray with me that God would speak this message deeper and deeper into our hearts. Please join me in prayer. Our great God, I thank you that in your grace you've not left us to our own solutions as ridiculous as they usually are. But into the whole mess of life, you have sent your own Son to be a true solution, to be the true King. I pray that as we continue to go about our busy season in December, that you would continually remind us that this isn't it, that, that, that our solutions are not true solutions, but, but you have gone to the root of the issue. You have sent your Son to save the world. In his name we pray. Amen.